Blog Talk Radio. Six, 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 six. Come and get one in the yarbles. If you have any yarbles, your unit can jelly down. Six, 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 six. This incident is going down on your permanent record. Do you want to play rough? Say hello to my little friend. Bust you up. Go for it. Well, here we go. The war is on. We're just waiting for the bell. And there is the bell. You know what that means. It's time for a knockdown, drag out. Two people enter. Only one leaves. Retro Rumble here on Six Degrees of Retro here at Blog Talk Radio slash GRR, the Greg Reifstech Radio Network. In this corner this week, you get me, Greg, the movie maniac Reifstech. And in the other corner, the challenger. This week, we will have Trista the Video Vixen Perez. That's right. This show is two retro experts throwing down to give each other six degrees of retro knowledge for you to enjoy. Six rounds of references for you to Google and wonder, how the hell do these two people know so much? Well, you're also probably wondering who ends up being the winner. It's you, the listener. Because you're going to be the champion because you're going to gain all this knowledge from the Video Vixen and from myself this week. So just lay back or sit back or chill out in your car and listen. So let's get right to it. And I see who is sitting over in the other corner of the ring. Is this the Video Vixen? Yes, it is. All right. And where do you hail from? Well, I'm originally from Houston, Texas, but uh, I now live in lovely Portland, Oregon. Oh, awesome. Keep, keep Keeping Portland weird up there, is, is it actually as weird as everybody says it is? It's probably weirder than a lot of people think. <laughs> I've been up there, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, be your own hype man. Give it. Give us the lowdown on uh, who Trista Perez is. Well, uh, in my day-to-day life, I actually work as a producer at an advertising agency. But in the rest of my time, I uh, enjoy film. It's uh, my passion. I uh, spend a lot of time watching movies, reviewing movies. I have a website. Um, TheVideoVixen.com, where I um, have some of my reviews up. I just got a new site up last year, which is uh, pretty nice. And uh, I'm just spending a lot of time writing new material and hoping to get all of that posted uh, pretty quickly here. But, uh, yeah, my life is, uh, I'd say, 75% dedicated to um, my love of cult movies. 
You are a huge cult movie person. That's why I wanted to bring you on. That's what we're going to do this week is go head-to-head, six rounds of cult movies. Everybody's going to learn about a lot of new different movies. Some of them are going to be familiar, but we're going to talk about our favorite scenes. We're going to talk about why we enjoy them so much, why they are actually a cult film. And let's start with that. What is your definition of a cult film? Well, um, I read this amazing book um, several years ago, and it was the uh, Psychotronic uh, Encyclopedia of Film. Which I own as well. Oh, yes. It's a fantastic book. I never knew what to really call the types of movies that I was drawn to. I just knew it was a certain sort, and it wasn't exactly, you know, the blockbusters or, you know, what everybody else was going out to watch. I liked these kind of quirky, you know, films. Some of them, you know, are quite popular to uh, the general public, but for the most part, um, these movies just have something special about them, whether they're, you know, from these uh, filmmakers who really are thinking outside the box and doing something different, or they're filmmakers who just don't give a damn and they're just putting whatever they want up there and don't care about, uh, editing or, you know, it's, you know, I like the sloppy messes. If somebody rates something a one on IMDb, I definitely want to watch that movie. Like <laughs> I will seek out pretty, those movies. Because, oh yeah. Cause you know what? Uh, some people might say, well, that was a crappy film. I'll look at it and be like, that was an amazing film. I saw the boom mic like 50 times. That's a great movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good way of putting cult movies. I came up not only through that book, and I've seen these books. um, You've mentioned them on your website or on your Instagram, uh, the uh, cult movie books. Oh, yes, Danny Perry's books. Danny Perry's books are amazing. I remember being at the... Uh, Wells Library in Chicago where I grew up and I saw this movie it's book called cult movies and I opened this thing up and I was just like I haven't heard of half of these movies but the pictures look great and I was (laughs) like I need to see every single one of these damn movies and then by the time I, I I only got halfway through those movies he puts out a second book and I'm like holy cow how am I gonna you know (laughs) catch up it's like but wait there's more (laughs) <laughs> wait, there is more and there's always more the, the perfect example that's out there right now and i just saw it last night was darren aronofsky's mother uh-huh. lowercase m exclamation point title it is it is it i didn't know this until this morning it got a cinema score of an f because <laughs> people are completely freaked out by this i i I going into it knew it was going to be weird because it's Darren Aronofsky who gave us the brilliant Requiem for a Dream, but right. and and the famous. Uh, by the way, you don't have to censor yourself on here. The 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 infamous double ended dong scene of Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> yeah, have you seen that movie? I have. Um, <laughs> you'll you'll laugh at this uh, because I think we had a similar upbringing where uh, our parents took us to see movies that probably would be deemed inappropriate, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 
for the age, but uh, at one time I was doing a movie exchange with one of my daughters, and she took me to see, she picked Soul Plane. So we went to see Soul Plane. And then the next time it was my turn to pick a movie, I picked Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> there you go. And I took her to a see nice that. A nice family film to watch and relax and enjoy. Yeah, Nothing was, like seeing an older woman get messed up on speed and then, you know. <laughs> nice well, I love the books for, for yeah. I, I, you know, I have um, three of Hubert Selby Jr.'s novels, and I'd read that one, you know, many times. And so I was really looking forward to seeing it, but I kind of had forgotten, you know, just how brutal the story can be. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she was a bit older, you know, she was in high school, so it wasn't that traumatizing, but it was, uh, you know, it had its awkward moments. It was funny. I, uh, well, I used to work for Variety first four years I was out here in Los Angeles and people that listen to my podcasts are pretty familiar with my career. So I covered the premiere for Requiem for a Dream. And of course, nobody knew what to think. And we see the movie at the premiere and then we have to cover the junket and Hubert showed up for the junket and people are, you know, trying to ask him, you know, about, about the book and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, I I just think it's, you know, a really tame book from, you know, what I see in my mind. <laughs> we were all like, okay. <laughs> tame doesn't come to mind with any anything to do with that. Anyway, let's move on. So we've established what cult movies are so people understand if they uh, didn't know before. And... Uh, go uh, ladies first and let's go to round one and uh, let's lay out basically the rules are here uh, we're going to link six films by ways of producers directors stars and just show you the potpourri of how many ways you can link uh, these films together and basically we had to do this long before Google <laughs> <laughs> That's the way our minds worked, and uh, pe- people uh, used to uh, make fun of me in high school for it, and then I made a living out of it, so you get the last laugh. Anyway, um, let's go to uh, the Video Vixen's first film. All right. Well, of course, I had to start out with my favorite movie of all time, uh, A Clockwork Orange. Uh, I just saw it again recently on the big screen, and I mean, from the very first just couple of frames, I took in this big inrush of breath because it is breathtaking. Um, it really resonates with me on a lot of levels. I mean, uh, Kubrick is my favorite director. Uh, I adore Malcolm McDowell. I've had a crush on him basically my entire life. And uh, the message behind the movie resonates with me. And also it's one of my favorite books. So uh, to me, this movie is perfection. And what's that message? Um, The message is that every man has the right to choose 
who they are and who they want to be and how they interact with society. Uh, people should not be forced to be, you know, good, in, in quote. It's interesting with movies like that because the way you – at least I gauge a movie – for being really good is that it's timeless. And even though they're in films are, you know, references to time, like the eighties or the seventies or whatever, if you watch a film and it still holds up themes wise, I mean, Clockwork Orange is a perfect example. I mean, you could release that film now and it would tell a lot about our society. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's still very relevant. Um, because it's it's more focused on just you know human nature and uh, you know how the government tries to uh, control people uh, you know and then just uh, you know I have my own thing about dealing with uh, doctors and uh, the medical field and so that plays a part in it and then you've also got uh, corruption in the police force. Uh, there's there's just so much at work there um, that it's these are still issues. When was the first time you saw the movie? Oh, I think I was a teenager the first time I saw it. Uh, you know, on VHS. Remember that? So you never. <laughs> so when was when was the first time you got to see it at the theater? Um, actually, this last week. That, that was, was the, the first, first time he saw it on the big screen. Nice. That is the very first time, and it just pretty much knocked me out. I mean, I walked out of the theater feeling like high uh, because I, I was just so blown away by what I'd seen. And, I mean, that's another definition of a cult film. That's another facet is it, it's a film that resonates with a niche of people, you know, for everybody that gave mother an F cinema score, you've got crazy people like me that give it an A. So, Well, and the, the beauty of seeing movies like that in a theater is that, you know, the ones who all, well, in the case of A Clockwork Orange, everyone that's there, they already love that movie. And you can just feel it in the air that everyone's equally excited and just you know, ready to go on this crazy roller coaster ride, and, and they're just, you know, so happy to be there and be, you know, experiencing that. And then in the case of a newer movie, uh, that feeling comes more towards the end as people are, you know, you know, the, after the credits have rolled and people are walking out, and you can just look at people's faces and tell, like, they dug it the way that I dug it. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. It, it, seeing it, seeing a film on screen for the first time, it, 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 it's really strange when you watch it with different audiences because I'm a huge fan of the film The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, and I've talked about that on a few of my other episodes. And I remember seeing – I mentioned this on one of my other episodes, but I digress – I worshipped the film and basically wrote school papers about this movie because I want to be Buckaroo Banzai, and I took the film seriously. I saw it for the first time at the theater when I was 15, mm -hmm. a very impressionable age, and he's male, and he's, 
able to do all these different things and to me was a real superhero and an everyman superhero, if you will. And then I get to see the movie at the New Beverly here at Quentin Tarantino's theater in Hollywood and Peter Weller's there and he's like, how many people are seeing this movie for the first time? And it's like three quarters of the audience were seeing the movie fresh and it gets halfway through the film and I was getting pissed off because everybody was laughing at this film, like right. in and out, laughing at stuff that I took at face value at 15 and then during subsequent watchings on VHS, totally serious to my life. <laughs> like it was my religion and people are laughing at my religion. And I was like, hey. Well, that happened here actually um, at the Hollywood Theater, which is uh, my favorite theater here in Portland. And uh, I actually was not at this screening, but um, I'm on a horror horror trivia team, and one of my teammates, you know, came back and reported that people were actually laughing at a screening of The Exorcist and just could not fathom why people would have that reaction to this amazing movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to reconcile, like, the way that you feel so passionately about a movie, and then you have people who just do not get it. Well, which which decades did you grow up during? I grew up in mainly the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Uh, I'm right there with you. I graduated okay. from high school in 1990. Okay, and I was 87, so we're close. So you're dealing with a different audience too. I mean, we thought the exorcist was terrifying and right. audiences now with all the CGI and everything, they see the effects in the exorcist and I'm sure just like, the, you know, what is this crap? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm the exact opposite because when I look at these uh, newer films, I mean, most modern horror movies, I don't even bother uh, because I don't really care for all the, you know, CG work. It's just, it's not my thing. I prefer the old-fashioned, you know, kind of Tom Savini, you know, just get in there and be a wizard and make amazing things happen, you know, while things are being shot as opposed to, you know, uh, editing tricks. I mean, in some movies I do appreciate that, but I just love, you know, my sweet spot for movies are uh, movies from the, 70s to the early 90s, I think, are kind of, that's where my real joy lies. I pretty much fall in the same place. And my problem is there's a little bit too much CGI these days. You saw It recently, the remake, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't scared. And my friend went, and she wanted to be scared. She wasn't scared either. And we hit the end of the movie. I go, I flinched once. And she goes, I flinched twice. And I remember, of course, watching the original It, you know, movie of the week, miniseries, and being scared to death. (laughs) Every single time um, Pennywise came on screen, it was creepy, and just Tim Curry's whole, you know, take on the character was just, like, eerie and and scary and creepy. And he was the, you know, you could see why the kids were genuinely afraid in the new it, it was like, okay, they're afraid of a lot of special effects. 
Well, I still haven't seen it. I mean, I I'm pretty torn because it is one of my favorite books, and uh, I did actually like the uh, you know the original because I I really got a kick of seeing all my favorite kind of you know TV sitcom stars in this movie. <laughs> that was a horror movie. Uh, so that was, you know, that added a little, you know, that was some icing on the cake for me, and I just have a soft spot, soft spot in my heart for that film. Um, but you know, I wanted to see what, you know, if they raise the bar at all, and I'm, I'm really hearing kind of mixed reviews. You'll enjoy it. It's not a bad film. It's just a good film. That instead of being excellent like the original was. So let's play, uh, you've, uh, you've queued up for me um, an example from Clockwork Orange. We're going to play the intro of the film right here. intro. Tristan, what do you think is the milk of modern day, would you say? The milk of modern day? Oh, that is such a good question. And uh, I really know. Um, It's not high fructose corn syrup? (laughs) Possibly. I think because now people are so... um, so much more health conscious, and they're just pretty much uh, pushing things at us that, you know, don't have this, don't have that, salt-free, no MSG, you know, and all the other, which, by the way, I don't pay attention to any of that stuff. You know, I lived this long without, uh, you know, I just uh, try to eat healthy, as in healthy portions, and don't eat too much of anything one way or the other. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm bad and sometimes I'm not. I mean, but uh, for the most part, I'm pretty healthy. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not <clears throat> really sure what uh, the modern milk might be other than, you know, I, what I'm noticing here in Portland, you know, because marijuana is legal here, that uh, a lot of people – uh, and maybe they were already doing this before, but it's certainly um, more obvious to me that uh, a lot of people are just walking around pretty much stoned 90% of the time. <laughs> They've got, and much like, you know, in 
a Clockwork Orange where they're talking about you can get milk plus whatever. Uh, you know, they've got all these different strains, and, you know, they have all these kooky names and different flavors and whatnot. So maybe that would be, uh, you know, the the milk of the present. I think you're right with that in in a sense because it is something that is very readily available now everywhere. And it's everybody's go-to as opposed to before they'd go to their doctor and ask for a script for medication. And now it's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'll just go to the pot doctor and I'll get my cure. And then everything will be okay. And as you have, you know, put it, you know, can phase out the world and, you know, do what I want. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are marijuana stores. Uh, they're everywhere. I mean, in every neighborhood here, you can't really go very far without hitting one. I mean, just um, from where I live, I can walk a few blocks to three different shops. Yeah. And I'm not anti-pot. It's just, I think you might be right. I think it's going to become the new thing that's going to keep people in a haze and not worry about what's going on around them uh, like a lot of other substances did in the past. Yeah, I I mean, I am not anti-pot either. I mean, it doesn't work for me. I prefer not to. I I love my cocktails, and uh, that's what I'm sticking with. But uh, I just... You know, I don't drink all day. That's the thing. You know, I have the specific time and place where, you know, I might indulge. And it just seems like, you know, now that if you can walk into uh, a shop, you know, just like you'd walk into a grocery store and just kind of pick up whatever you need, I don't think that people are, uh, you know, as quite as uh, choosy as they used to be. Uh, when it wasn't legal and you might just do it, you know, at night when you get home after work or on the weekends with your friends. It's like just uh, part of everyday life now. It's uh, any time of day or night. Definitely. Definitely. Um, let's move on to my round one. And uh, since Clockwork Orange is kind of talking about establishment, anti-establishment uh, values, I decided to start with Rock and Roll High School. Oh, uh, yes. The <laughs> fine, fine, fine film that, well, the Ramones were already very much around, but we, um, oh, excuse the sirens in the background in Hollywood. <laughs> there aren't sirens, it's not Hollywood. Um, so Rock and Roll High School came out in 1979, and of course, the plot line basically is uh, Riff Randall, uh, played by the wonderful uh, PJ Souls, the the very attractive PJ Souls with her blonde locks and perky disposition, uh, is a huge uh, rock and roller in the late 70s. And I mean, at that time, uh, we were taught we, we, we punk was around and rock was still trying to survive because uh, the disco era had 
ravaged the 70s for better or for worse. Um, I like all kinds of music, music, so it didn't matter to me personally. But a lot of people were kind of pissed that rock and had gone away. So punk emerged and the Ramones emerged and uh, a lot of your bands from CBGB as well, Talking Heads and um, Blondie. Blondie. Oh, Blondie, Blondie, Blondie. <laughs> Just saw her this year. Oh, boy. If if I want to be able to rock out like she does in my 70s, that's for sure. Um, so, of course... Uh, the high school has been taken over by the new principal, uh, played by the wonderful Mary Warrenov, uh, Silver Lake's very own here in Los Angeles. She plays the evil Miss Togar, who is trying to put her foot down on the fun uh, that all the kids are having, that uh, Riff Randall has perpetuated all the fun, and... Uh, she, of course, has fantasies about the Ramones. That's one of my favorite scenes in this film is uh, they sing this song, I Want You Around. Uh, and uh, she's basically doing what all of us did when we were young, sit there with the headphones blaring uh, of our favorite band, listening to the stereo with our feet kicked back, laying in bed and just fantasizing that the band is right there with you. And I remember seeing this on VHS for the first time in my late teens and just going, wow, I, I can totally relate to this film because I am very much into music and I had always fantasized about meeting my favorite bands. And uh, it's just one of those kind of movies. It's escapism. It's musical escapism. Uh, yeah, and it's just, it's, absolutely, it's so fun. Oh, yeah, it's a blast. It's a blast from beginning to end. The humor's really good. Alan Arkish directed it, of course, and he's just really good at having these little vignette scenes of humor, and then you get the, you know, Ramones cranking out a few songs, and then you get back to this, you know, very inside, uh, hu very, almost very West Coast Hollywood humor uh, about the music scene out here at the time. Um, what else, what did you like about the film? Um, you know, I, I love comedies that end with like utter and total complete destruction of the environment. Uh, you know, uh, kind of makes me think of uh, like animal house where, you know, it, everything is just utter chaos. They have, ruined this parade and that's what I love about one of the things I love about rock and roll high school is how they just destroy that school that was like one of my fantasies growing up is that why can't something just amazing happen at this school to you know just uh, because to me it was just another way of kind of being controlled growing up and I didn't really believe in all the bullshit clicks and you know all that kind of stuff so uh, that movie really appealed to me as like kind of being a rebel you know Rip's doing her own thing and she's just absolutely in love with this band and I was definitely that girl who um, you know I would fall in love with different bands all the time and just like kind of obsess over them and just go crazy and uh you know, I, that scene that you mentioned where she's just in her room and just being, you know, immersed in this music that she loves, like, that was me. 
Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I uh, I can remember the first three albums I owned were uh, Foreigner 4, uh, Devo's New Traditionalists, and Rush's Exit Stage Left. And wow. Every single one of them meant a lot to me because everybody remembers Columbia Record and Tape Club. Um, it was like a rite of passage. My father's like, you can order your own records now. And I'm like, oh, for a God, penny. I order. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> for a penny. That's why he let me order them. If they were more than that, he sure as hell wouldn't have let me. <laughs> but I, it was, I, I would, I, I remember I actually didn't know a lot about all the bands and I actually chose them by their album covers, you know, back when the album art meant so much. And right. I remember just looking at the fronts and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I was in the movies. I was huge in the movies and I was young. So I was like, okay, four and four. And they've got the four, you know, with the countdown, you know, of, of a film. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I used to sit there at the stereo and listen to all of them and just, when am I going to get to meet Rush? When am I going to get to meet Devo? And yeah. Well, I totally based my uh, first record buys because, you know, thank goodness for MTV, at least the MTV that existed back then. I mean, the first album I ever bought, and it sounds like, you know, you're very similar to me in that you're a musical taster. You like all different kinds of genres, and I was the same way. I mean, the first album I bought was Quiet Riot's Mental Health, or Metal Health. That's the first nice. album. And I bought uh, Culture Club's uh, Color by Numbers. Another great one. Oh, yeah. And my mother, I mean, <laughs> was just uh, confused at what was going on with me because, you know, she just basically listened to just R&B. That was, you know, her jam. And she was like, you know, is this my child? Like, what what is going on here? <laughs> and it's funny. Our parents reacted that way, and I'm reacting that way. It's It's weird. I open up the LA Weekly now here, which is all of probably 20 pages now. Because there's no advertisements, and I I had this horrible moment about a month ago where I kept looking, and I'd gone through about ten pages, and I couldn't, I didn't know what any of the bands were, not one, and I was like, oh my god, I'm my dad, <laughs> my dad when he used to sneak into my room and look at my record collection, you know, what the hell's my son listening to, and he's like what is all this crap? I have no idea who any of these people are. <laughs> well, that, my mother uh, actually was, both my parents had, you know, excellent taste. My dad was more of a, he listened to everything. So he was uh, a bit more hip when it came to music overall. But my mom pretty much stuck to, you know, the R&B genre, but she would be up to date uh, and she was the first part. She always, whenever some new stereo system came out, she would run out and get it. And she was, like, we were the first ones to have a CD player, like a five-changer CD player. So, you know, that was a, a great way to make friends because, you know, we had this, you know, badass stereo. And you could put, like, several CDs in at one time. And, you know, so uh, I think she just wasn't um, as impressed with my choices in music. Speaking of badass stereos, I didn't want to, I'm going to play the, um, 
apart from Rock and Roll High School, but I didn't want to blow for people that haven't seen it and that will go on to see it because of this episode. Uh, there is a scene involving a little white mouse in an experiment, <laughs> and it has to do with decibels of music. And if you're not familiar with the science of decibels uh, and sound, uh, you'll definitely learn a lot from this scene, and you will learn uh, not to put animals around them, allegedly. Uh, I don't know what the uh, so- valid science in the scene was, but uh, <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> So uh, let's listen to some Rock and Roll High School. It's 1980. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School? Do you want to I am Miss Togar, and I am the new principal of this school. <laughs> And who are you? I'm Riff Randall, rock and roller. The only girl I ever dream about at night is Riff. I've done more detentions than anyone in the school's history. Are you a virgin? Oh. <sighs> How about a cheerleader? Nice set of pom-poms. Term wanted Riff, but Riff wanted to live a rock and roll fantasy to the music of her favorite group. The hottest band this side of the Iron Curtain, the the entire school with his godforsaken noise. Things sure have changed since we got kicked out of high school. They tried to stop their music, but the kids got wrecked and rocked the school. Rock and roll high school, the school where the students rule. Could your school be next? Speaking of musical chaos, <laughs> um, it, I thought it was really strange when I was setting up my list that I didn't even know that this was a natural next step. So let's go on to round two, go to the Video Vixen, and to a film that Alan Arkish also directed four years after Rock and Roll High School. Is that not right? That is correct. Um, Take so, it away. Uh, my next movie is uh, Get Crazy. It's 1980. Welcome to Rock. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> For some reason it decided <laughs> to replay. Weird. Okay. So uh, my next movie is uh, Get Crazy. Uh, Malcolm McDowell was also in this film. Uh, it is, um, when they say get crazy, they really mean get crazy. Uh, it's just this oddball um crazy uh, comedy that takes place. It's at New Year's Eve at this uh, big concert venue, and uh, it's just um, pure insanity. I saw this again uh, a couple of months ago. might have been maybe three months ago uh, at the Hollywood here in Portland, and uh, it was my first time seeing it on the big screen, and it just uh, allowed me to see uh, much more that was going on that I hadn't noticed in all the times that I'd actually watched it, you know, on VHS. Um, it's 
It's a special film. It is definitely one of those movies where you just imagine a bunch of people sitting around a table doing massive lines of coke, you know, and trying to come up with, uh, you know, a movie idea. And I don't think this movie was even meant to uh, really make money. Uh, It it doesn't seem like it was. Uh, And it's just uh, all these bands are performing at this uh, concert hall, and uh, <laughs> they're, they kind of spread the genres around. So you've got kind of this old-time, you know, blues guy, and then you have the uh, Malcolm McDowell's character is, you know, like a glam rocker, and then you've got this punk rock band. Um, and uh, for me, the person that stood out in Get Crazy, leaving – He's he's not a major character in the movie, but for me, he was the one that I just could not wait to see him on screen again. I just I love him. Leaving is always a major character, even when he's not. <laughs> in my life, for sure. <laughs> Lead singer of the band Fear. I mean, come on. Uh, he's a, he's a legend, of course, here in Los Angeles, and um, yeah, he's he's just amazing and has such a personality and uh yeah i so, love his voice i mean his voice is just so gritty and uh i don't know i just find him amazing uh to look at and to listen to and do you remember and get crazy like how his character is introduced no i don't i haven't seen that movie probably since it was on like usa up all night to be completely uh, honest with, wait with Rhonda, or are you talking about with gilbert well that was at the same time remember Rhonda would come on on fridays and gilbert would come on on saturdays i think it was a Rhonda night <laughs> ah yeah well uh so leaving you know uh he he's introduced uh, he's with his band, and they keep him locked up in the trunk of their car. And so they, you know, the trunk, and he just comes running out, and he's, like, shirtless, and he's manic, and he's just screaming and yelling. And then he kind of makes a deal with, uh, you know, the the guy who's uh, running the concert, and uh, he's talking about, you know, how they're going to get paid and everything. He has, like, a moment of clarity where he's, like, negotiating for a few seconds, you know, what how he's going to be paid. And then he signs the contract by just ramming his head into the the back of the car until he puts a big giant dent in it. Wow. I think <laughs> – uh... I think the writers of The Hangover owe the writers of Get Crazy a check, don't you think? Quite uh, possibly. <laughs> from the Kim Jong scene? <laughs> as soon as you said that, I was like, wait, Hangover. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that um, I don't know how many people pick up on this when they're watching the movie, but like I mentioned, you know, there's all these different bands performing, and they all in their you know in their set list no matter what genre they're from they all perform this song called Hoochie Coochie Man and it just points back to um how you know whenever you're listening to you know musicians and they're talking about their inspirations for music um they all 
go back to, you know, either blues or R&B having a big influence and no matter what kind of music that they're playing. And that is actually shown in this film because, the you know, the older blues guy, he's just blown away by the fact that, you know, here's this glam rock singer and he's doing, he's like, he's doing my song. And then the punk rock band comes out and it's like, oh, they're doing my song. It's it's a pretty interesting how they, you know, threw that in there. Well, I think that's uh, Alan Arkish's stamp on the film. Uh, I mean, the man really knows how to infuse music into a movie. It's strange now because now he works in television, but still in some of the episodes you'll see, you know, musical references throughout his the TV episodes. Um, one of the latest episodes he directed was for a, a show that I watch as a guilty pleasure called Nashville. And he did a great job. And then it was, it was actually really strange seeing Helen Arkish's name show up as a director at the beginning of the episode. I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> so what, what, what insane thing is about to happen? Is he... <laughs> and, and nothing insane happened of course, but it, there, I think Strangely enough, it was um, a blues episode, if I remember ah. correctly. So the man definitely has his heart in the blues and definitely put his stamp on Get Crazy, which is that's a wonderful segue into your clip. Let's hear Fear Hoochie Coochieing It Up. <laughs> Coochie Man into a little bit of That's the Fact Jack. You took your first degree from Clockwork Orange and linked Malcolm McDowell into Get Crazy. I'm going to take Rock and Roll High School and link PJ Souls into the movie Stripes. 
the wonderful classic uh, Bill Murray film. Uh, Harold Ramis, of course, the great creative mind behind this as well. And this film gets some t- a lot of people. There's a cult behind this film, but people write it off a little bit because it has a kind of a not so great second half to the film. Because mm-hmm. right, the plot line is of course uh, Harold Ramis gets talked into joining the army along with his loser friend Bill Murray, uh, who is a cab driver and has decided to drop out of society and decides, well, I'll make money in the army or keep my head above water. And uh, I will play a bunch of clips that are his, a few, some of his classic lines. But it hits the middle point, and everybody knows the legendary scene at the graduation. They all finally graduate basic training in a very unorthodox fashion from the Army. And you have the that, that's the fact, Jack scene and razzle-dazzle and all that. And then the film could have ended. It could have ended. It could have been so great. It would have been perfect. No. Yep. No. They had to go over to uh, wherever it is, Russia, Europe, I forget. I always kind of zone out for the second half of the film. Me too. Every single time. Yeah. All of a sudden, Joe Flaherty shows up and, you know. <laughs> it's like a, it's, it's, it's two movies in one. Yeah, you'd always hit that point, and I'm like, oh, God, can I just turn it off now? Oh, man. (laughs) But we have the great first half, and I love the film, and I love all the one-liners, and this was the film that really, along with Caddyshack, established Bill Murray as an everyman comedian, and you have everybody in here. You have Warren Oates, you have John Candy, you have Judge Reinhold, Sean Young, uh, you have uh, PJ Souls is in the famous Aunt Jemima scene, which I'm going to play a short piece from. And even here's a strange piece of trivia. I was looking on the IMDb, Trista, and Bill Paxton played soldier number eight. What? Oh, yeah. wow. Now I have that to watch right. it again. <laughs> now, we're, now I have to watch it and look. Where's soldier number eight? Where's soldier number eight? Where's Bill Paxton? He's going to look like he did in the, you know, fish heads video. Come on. All right. Where is he? Super young Bill Paxton. Anyway, um, everybody knows the movie. Let's just play the classic clips. I'm not saying that the Army will be able to do for you what it did for me. All I'm saying is that you get out of it exactly what you put into it. Now, there's a couple of questions that I have to ask you. They're a little personal. Uh, have you ever been uh, convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor? That's uh, robbery, rape, car theft, that sort of thing. Convicted? Never convicted. Are either of you uh, homosexuals? You mean like flaming or? Well, it's a, it's a standard question we have to ask. No, we're not homosexual, but we are willing to learn. Okay, Mr. Push-Ups. Let's hear your story. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. But. Now I know why I have always lost women to guys like you. I mean, it's not just the uniform. It's the stories that you tell. So much fun and imagination. Lee Harvey, you are a madman. When you stole that cow, 
And your friend tried to make it with the cow? I want to party with you, cowboy. The two of us together? Forget it. Let's look at the general's cupboards. John! You know, you're very pretty for a cop. Oh, thanks a lot. I don't know, thank you. You know what your problem is, baby? No, I don't. Your problem is that you're armed. You're heavily armed. You know, guys have a lot of trouble with girls that are armed. They don't know how to come on. You know what the rest of your problem is? You've never had anybody give you the angiomyna treatment. No, I certainly haven't. Yeah, that's that. right. First, you get up on the grill. I'll get you up to cruising speed. <laughs> Wait, I'm talking to stick on the bottom, my dear. Keep hopping. Keep hopping, honey. I'm not enjoying this. Now You're quit not, it. Huh? Quit it. Maybe you need this. Oh, what are you going to do with that? This? <laughs> and this? <laughs> Who's your friend? Who's your buddy? I am, all right. You're crazy no. about me, aren't you? No. You're incredibly head over heels in love with me. No. You're helplessly, hopelessly, deeply in love with me, aren't you? Yes. And that's Stripes. Oh. <laughs> I love her laugh. Oh, PJ Souls, it's so wild in person. Have you ever met her? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I did not get to... Uh, really speak to her, but um, we had a showing of Carrie here, and she uh, attended the showing, and that woman has not aged a bit. She looks exactly the same. And she has the same laugh, exact same laugh. They had, they must have been, that's that's the movie she shows up with now is Carrie. I went to Drag Queen Bingo at Hamburger Mary's here in L.A., and they always have surprise movie stars, and they had the cast of Carrie show up. So it was her and William Pat, and I didn't even know they were supposed to be there. So I was like, out of my mind, pissed. I didn't have anything to get autographed or anything, but I, I was like, I gotta go up and talk to at least PJ Souls and William Cat, and I, oh I gosh. forget what I told her. I said something silly, and I did the same laugh. I said, I go. Wow, I go, that laugh is real. She goes, yes, this is my laugh. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, uh, that's round two. Let's uh, jump into round three. And uh, what's your link and what's your next film? So we're going to take Leaving from Get Crazy, and we're going to put him in uh, Streets of Fire, which is one of my all-time favorite uh, musicals. Uh, it uh, takes place in this uh, kind of weird alternate universe with uh, that's mixing like 1950s style with uh, futurism. Uh, it's directed by Walter Hill, who is just he's an amazing director, and I I love he's absolutely awesome at uh, action scenes, and that's one of the things that I love about Streets of Fire is it's got this. Uh, kind of great rock and roll sensibility, but also just kick-ass action scenes. Cause I, I, I love to see Mayhem, and once again, it is one of those movies where everything gets wrecked, and it's amazing. Also, it I does, fell in love with Michael Pere. <laughs> you want to get wrecked by Michael Pere, is that what you said? Uh, perhaps. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he he's aged interestingly. 
um, uh, he was at a screening here with uh, Deborah Van Falkenberg. It was funny, I digress, when you had this on your list, I was like, oh, God, the fans of my podcast are finally going to get to hear about Streets of Fire from somebody else besides me because it's one of my top five favorite films, and they've heard me talk from beginning to end about this damn movie. So, oh, yes, man. there are other people that like this film besides me. <laughs> well, I found out it actually has, uh, you know, quite an audience. I, I went to see it here, and it was absolutely packed and I was with a friend who hadn't seen it before and she was just like you know I I don't think she really understood the appeal (laughs) of the movie but she could tell like everyone here is digging this movie so much and everyone sang along which was fabulous because the soundtrack to this movie I mean I still have my cassette tape that I bought ages ago um from this film. It's just an uh, awesome soundtrack. And it hasn't worn out. You're very lucky. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that metal tape works. Wow. That XDR stuff was awesome, wasn't it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Streets of Fire. I've talked so much about this uh, film. I, I, I love it from uh, inside and out. And I have a um, surprise uh, for you. Uh, Before we play your fine music and clip, um, oh, this actually goes with uh, the next film. I'm sorry. So we'll play Streets of Fire, but I have a surprise uh, Walter Hill clip for you for your next film. Uh, From when Walter Hill was at a screening here, of the film that I just saw about six months ago. Yes, I've gone to four different screenings of this film here. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a great film. But let's let's have people enjoy the music of Streets of Fire. I'll be coming for her, and I'll be coming for you too. Sure you will, and I'll be waiting. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before, where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun, where the beautiful, the brutal, and the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. Creators of 48 Hours, Universal Pictures presents Michael Paré, Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, and Amy Madigan in a Walter Hill film, Streets of Fire. Oh, that is so wonderful. (laughs) It is wonderful to hear that. The tragic thing, and I wanted to just add this, in listening to that, it came back to me. 
I, of course, wanted to meet him and got my picture with him. And the movie, uh, it was screened with the Warriors. And the movie The Warriors was going on. And I go hit the bathroom because we all know the Warriors by heart. And there's Walter out there. And I say hi. And I recorded a question that I asked him that I was going to eventually turn to a podcast. But he does not remember Streets of Fire fondly and it's strange to hear Universal Pictures presents because this he made as their what was supposed to be their big hit of that year they spent a ton of money on this movie they went over budget and he when I asked him some questions he's like I don't really want to talk about it he goes there was a lot of whiskey and bloodshed over that film wow oh that's tragic And, and and yeah, and like just like you, Trista, I worship this film, and I'm just like, oh my god, the director of the film doesn't even like the film anymore. <laughs> it was very sad. And even when he they, he did a Q and A before Streets of Fire came on, he uh, they'd ask him questions about it, and he kept shifting the questions back to the Warriors, which to <laughs> him was a more triumphant film. He all he did was tell the. Um, the uh, uh, story about uh, Amy Madigan wanting him to rewrite the sidekick part, which originally was probably going to be played by Edgar James Olmos and was going to be a Latino uh, male sidekick. But uh, yeah, it was so sad. <laughs> oh, and it's, you know, it's funny, like growing up as, you know, a you know, young girl, um, one of the things that struck me about this movie is that I couldn't choose who I wanted to be more like because I loved both of them so much. I mean, I wanted to be Diane Lane because she was just gorgeous and just, I mean, just talk about oozing sexiness. And then, you know, she's up on stage and she's singing. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I love her. But then I also really... Um, identified with Amy Madigan's character because she's just this unconventional woman. She is a badass. She's a soldier. And I was like, yeah, I want to be tough like that girl too. You know, if I could just mash them up together, which, you know, I think um, uh, maybe with, you know, uh, Michael Perrier's character, Tom Cody, like I think he was, you know, a bit attracted to Amy Madigan's character. And I could see how... Yeah, I I'd, I'd want both those girls. Like how could I make that happen? <laughs> <laughs> he keeps trying for Mamie Adigan, but she keeps insisting, I'm not your type. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not quite tough enough for her. <laughs> and whatever other undertones you want to read into that. Anyway. <laughs> But didn't you enjoy Let's, seeing Rick Moranis too as like this uh totally this this unlikable, just mean spirited and nasty kind of toad the entire film and then you kinda of realize, well, you know, he's he does have some humanity to him, but you just spend most of the movie hoping that I hope that guy gets hit. Like somebody's gonna bust this guy in the chops eventually, right? My favorite thing about him, and I wish I had a copy of the script in front of me so I could count how many times he goes, it's the shit. 
Yes. Everything in the movie is the shits. I'm really getting screwed in this concert. It's the shits. We're going to go into the Bowery. It's the shits. Everything. Oh, and he's got these great, like, ways of just cutting down people. Like, just, you know, in the nastiest way possible. And, and you're just like, wow, is there anybody actually could speak like that in real life? Uh, who just has these, you know, really nasty comebacks for everything. He's just like, just in a bad mood 24-7. Well, I, I've read and what Walter Hill has said, everybody's like, why Rick Moranis? He's a comedic actor. And he was like, well, that's why he was able to bring all that vitriol to his character. Because all comedians have tragedy inside of them. That's where they get the energy for that. And so basically he brought that fire to the um, – I don't know if he auditioned or whatever, but I think he tried out, you know, did, did a reel or whatever. And Walter Hill was like, yeah, that's what I want. I want that bite. And it was the comedian side of him. And he said it was so strange, though, on the set, though. He was kind of staying in character and being the same way. He was uh-huh. always giving Michael Pere crap. And actually, Michael Pere at one point, I think, wanted to kick his ass. Because <laughs> Michael Pere at the time was kind of, he, even Michael Pere has admitted at screenings, he's like, I wasn't the greatest actor in this movie, and I didn't feel very strong as an actor back then. And Rick Moranis was established. So I think he was kind of, you know, trying to, you know, keep his foot on him. So to speak. Yeah, he's not going to be upstage by this pretty boy, muscle bound guy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next round. And I am going to, for my round three, link uh, Bill Murray from Stripes into Bill Murray in a tour de force role in Ed Wood. Love this film. Uh, Tim Burton's, of course, love letter to one of the most eccentric and uh, worst, yes, worst directors of all time, Ed Wood, uh, played by Johnny Depp, fantastically. This is probably easily one of my top three, if not my second favorite Tim Burton film of all time. Done in black and white, uh, all-star cast, everybody shows up in this thing, um, Sarah Jessica Parker is the woman that couldn't handle his cross-dressing. You know, he has a thing for the pink cashmere sweaters, you know. Who's yeah. to say? And uh, <laughs> Patricia Arquette plays the woman that says, oh, I don't care. <laughs> Let's roll. Uh, you're, you're a creative genius. And it's just such a wonderful love letter to filmmaking back in that era where um, – how do you pronounce the director's name? Is it Uwe Boll? Yes. Yeah. He he was the Uwe Boll of his time. If anybody doesn't know the Ed Wood reference, just he tried so hard and really thought he was making good movies. And just as you so quaintly put uh, when you were talking about cult films, all of his films are a one, like they're real solid ones. <laughs> Yeah, I but mean, the thing about Ed Wood, though, yeah. is that his his ones, they're watchable, and for me, that makes them actually rank higher. Like, I, I've slogged my way 
through most of his catalog. And I have to say, I um, I really enjoy his movies. So I can see how people would put him as the worst. But man, I've seen way worse, way worse movies than uh, you know what he's done. Like Yue Bull movies. Yeah. <sighs> anyway. That's the difference. Yue Bull makes bad films, but he like casts Tara Reed as a scientist. Okay, whatever. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh the other person of course you get in this film is the lovely late Martin Landau, who we just lost, as Bella Lugosi just Oscar caliber performance, of course. Just Going to town, the famous pull the string scene, which I'll play, um, along with the great octopus scene. Uh, people that aren't familiar <laughs> with the film, uh, Ed Wood catches Bella Lugosi late in his career when he's very, very sick, and he was a notorious uh, drunk because he'd gotten sick and just stayed sick. So he took advantage of him and used him, and but they became really good friends. So. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Edward was so gung-ho, he stuck this poor old man out in the water wrestling this quote-unquote octopus, which was this blown-up <laughs> yeah. octopus, and it's just horrible. He's just flailing around in the water with these fake arms going, ah! it's <laughs> but it's hilarious. It's so damn hilarious. Um, do you have any uh, scenes you remember from Ed Wood that you enjoyed? My one, of, well, everything with Bill Murray in it is just gold. But my favorite is when he's being baptized. Uh, it's so funny. That's reason. my favorite scene. I'm going to play that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, it's it is the one scene where I just felt like yes. This is a religious experience. This just went a whole nother level up. Mm-hmm. You know? I've used that line and tortured many girlfriends with that line. They'll ask me something and be like, do you really want to do this? Blah, 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 blah. And I'll go, sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they'll go, what, what are you, where's, you're always quoting movies. Where's that from? And then I have to explain it because they usually have never seen the film. Yeah. Um, so let's... Uh, Let's uh, play some Ed Wood. They make you tall, and you're flashy. They want that, okay? But they want professionalism, so Nick Sandinelli, without losing naivete, okay? Now, the good news is you're probably going to get hired because you look like Peggy Lee. But I don't want anybody else to resent that, okay? Please? Because there's enough for everybody. Exotics, too. Even if you're not going to smile, please don't bother, all right? They're embarrassing. Serious hormone injections. When those girls kick in, they're going to take out my organs and make me a woman. Are you serious? It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. But it wasn't until I saw your movie that I realized I have to take action. Goodbye, Peter. Please keep it there. Let's hear you call Boris Karloff a cocksucker. <laughs> do you reject Satan and all his evils? Sure. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. What about glitter? When I was a headliner in Paris, audiences always liked it when I sparkled. No. Cat's eyes. No. Well, I'm going to need some antennae. 
No, you're the ruler of the galaxy. Show a little taste. You were great as Karloff's sidekick. Karloff? Sidekick? Fuck you! Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit! That limey cocksucker can rot in hell for all I care! You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? Bullshit! I'm ready now. Roll the camera! Pull the string! Pull the string! Cut. Trist, I'm gonna need some antenna, okay? <laughs> what about glitter? <laughs> what about No, no. How about cat's eyes? Cat's eyes. Oh, God. oh my god. I mean, I'm just dying over here listening to all of that. It is just I had so much gold. fun putting that together. I had so much fun finding all of that. Oh my god. Yeah. Bill Murray, National Treasure, and I'm not putting a curse on you, Bill, but Everybody, you know, we get older and more and more uh, celebrities die. Actually, let's let's dedicate this show to the late Harry Dean Stanton, who we, at the age of 91, have lost. And uh, just, uh, yeah, Alien, Escape from New York, uh, of course, Repo Man, anything you want to add? Oh, I was going to say Repo Man is my favorite of all of his film roles, but uh, let's not forget Cockfighter. Uh, <laughs> if you want to like, dig deep, I don't know how many people have seen that. That's a really interesting film uh, from the 70s uh, that uh, I, I recommend just for the sheer, like, what the fuck is going on this about it? That the, that would be a choice? That. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've never seen Cockfighter. Yes, See? I, I recommend you dive in. See, the video vixen automatically wins that round because she made a reference of some movie I haven't seen. So she automatically wins round three. <laughs> ding, ding, yay. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Hell yeah. All right, let's go on to round four and your next film, Video Vixen. Yeah, so for round four, I'm actually um, linking through uh, Deborah Van Valkenburg and also through Walter Hill. Um, we're going to go with The Warriors. Um, if you have not seen this movie, you need to get your ass out there and go and like get a copy today. It is uh, epic. If you like action, um, if you like, uh, you know, I, I I love the script. Um, it's it's beautiful. The the choreography, like the, the fight scenes, uh, and then the sheer inventiveness of the the street gangs. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of this, uh, you know, gritty New York fantasy world where themed, you know, street gangs, you know, rule the night, and there's this one gang, the warriors who have to fight their way from, you know, the middle of New York all the way back to Coney Island, which is their territory. And the entire time that, you know, this kind of uh, almost uh, kind of like a, you know, Greek, uh, um, well, I don't want to say Greek tragedy, but kind of one of these epics, you know, this epic story of their travel back to their home and it's being narrated by uh, this DJ. Um, it's it's 
just an amazing film overall. Yeah, it, it, it's an amazing film. And um, the clips you gave me, I thought were very fitting because uh, the whole reason they have to fight their way back home is because James Remar's character is a dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's that's, amazing. That's line. But he's a dick. He's the one that pins the murder of the uh, this guy. The whole In the beginning of the movie, they're having this gang summit um, to bring peace between the gangs. And of course, James Remar, you know, blames the warriors for executing this guy that wants to bring peace to everybody. And uh, yeah, he's just a dick. There's no other way. Actually, the I think the the person who um, ends up who who like blames the warriors. I think it's David Patrick Kelly. Oh, sorry, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's just James Remar is the member of the warriors who's an asshole. That's a dick. Which yeah, he's makes a dick him the, the most. Way. Yeah, he's the most memorable. I think of the warriors because he's such an asshole, and you're like, how did that guy? get in with the rest of these dudes because the rest of them seem, you know, pretty stand-up, you know, typical tough guys. And he just sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, yeah. Everybody else is kind of chill and just wants to make it home, and he just wants to make every horrible decision on the way back. Like, oh, absolutely. Uh, com- coming on to a woman in a park and when to attack her and, you know, all kinds of other good, wholesome fun on the way home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I will say you gave me the clips in whole, but to be politically correct, I cut out some of the language. <laughs> oh yeah. His, uh, his terms for what he used, uh, like his terms for women are yeah. uh, <clears throat> pretty rough. Not cool for now. I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> Never was cool actually. <laughs> yeah. Accepted then, unfortunately, by the male community, but not even accepted by good men now. So uh, let's play some James Remar. To waste a few heads along the way. One thing we might get out of Cyrus's little get-together, meeting some strange wolf. I wouldn't mind laying a little something down on the way back. Ah, fuck him. I'll tell you something. I'll bet nobody's even going to be there. I only got one question. Who named you leader? I got as much right to take over as you. Poor chief. Oh, right about now, Cleon's most likely got a nightstick shoved halfway up his ass. <laughs> Shit. I bet you can't even find the subway. I want to be warlord. Not if they're wimps. And I'm sick of this running crap. I'll give it to you, baby. And I'll shove that bat up your ass and turn you into a popsicle. Come on. I guess you don't know the parks ain't safe after dark. You go ahead if you want. I'm going to get a little exercise. I'll tell you something, warlord. I'm smart enough. And it's there for free. I got the <laughs> reference wrong, but he's still a dick. Yeah. He is. He's just the worst. And you just wonder, like, uh, you know how they say in, in gangs, you know, you either get, you get beat in or you get fucked in. And I'm just like, I bet they had the best time ever beating the hell out of that guy. To get him, yeah. like, to let him in the game. <laughs> <laughs> what was really wild is at the screening I was at, um, he actually was there. He was in the audience for the um, Warrior screening. 
and uh, people spotted him. And when Walter Hill came up, he goes, hey, I think uh, I think James is here out in the audience. And he yelled out that line. He goes, I'm going to stick that bat so far up your ass. The whole crowd. I'm like, and Walter Hill is like, yep, he's still the same. <laughs> Yeah, that's him. <laughs> so I yeah, have this... I mean, yeah, go on. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, just the, uh, I, I think this, this movie caused, you know, some fear, you know, and like for the general public, like thinking, oh my God, you know, this could really happen. Like all the street gangs could get together and, and uh, if they did, they'd take over the world and, um, but then you watch the movie, and it's kind of laughable that anybody would even think that because, I mean, the baseball theories, you know, uh, just these themed uh, gangs, like the, that never existed. So, yeah. Are you <laughs> saying that there were all the busies? Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> Strangely enough, two things before. Uh, Actually, one thing before I pay the clip, uh, Walter Hill, uh, they said, was there anything cut out of the film? And he's like, oh, yeah. He goes, there was actually a gay gang of gay men that they filmed and was cut out. He cut out of the movie for pacing and there were just too many gangs being uh, introduced. And yeah, he... uh, and people are like, wow, what were they like? And he's like, actually, he put them in there um, to be sympathetic. Like, mm-hmm. he, the, the guys actually were, like, really strong and really buff, but they were gay, and they could kick ass. So well, have you ever been thing, to a leather bar? I mean. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was kind of his point, was like, um, they might be a gay gang, but they're going to kick the living crap out of you. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> He was he was he was trying to make social statements in that movie and in Streets of Fire and Forty Eight Hours through a lot of his films he was uh, uh, so let me play this clip where do you know the story of the Joe Walsh song at the end have you ever heard him Walter tell that story No I haven't but I, I absolutely love that song Okay well he's going to tell the story behind the end song by Joe Walsh. I've got a long, funny story about Joe Walsh, but I won't tell it. It takes too long. But, uh, the Joe Walsh song, I, I, I didn't really know Joe, but uh, uh, the last day at the dub, the song came in. We kept hearing this uh, from Barry Forsan. This, this wonderful guy, he was very excitable. He kept saying, Joe Walsh, Joe Walsh is doing a song for us. Joe Walsh is going to do this song for us. I know Joe Walsh. I know there was never any evidence of Joe Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Walsh, in, you know, in 1978, was, was like you're talking about Elvis or something. It was, uh, and still, it's not that he's in decline or something. But, and we just, you know, we were this little tiny movie hanging onto the edge of the lot. And we kept waiting. And he was going to do this song for free. You know, it was just, oh, you know, come on. And so we had some other music queued up. And the last day of the dub, we were doing the last meal. And it was like a movie. The board's like burst through the door. <laughs> says, I've got it. And he's holding up this little cassette. Joe was working all night. We were working together all night. I was in Santa Barbara. I drove 
song just fits yes it has oh, a west yeah. coast sensibility to it but it's kind of it, 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 it's good that it's not a new yorky kind of gritty song it is as you it, it's exactly you you put it very well as to and what it fits it, too with the gang because they're not they're not from the city you know they don't mm-hmm. live in the city they had to get all the way out to coney island which is you know that's their turf so it right. makes sense that they wouldn't be listening you know that 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 end song isn't some gritty kind of i don't know dirty uh you know new york 70s vibe you know that I, I think it's perfect as it is definitely let's move on to your next round um so uh we're going to connect uh james remar from the warriors to Cruising, which uh, <laughs> it's a William Freakin movie. Uh, I I love this movie. Uh, we just kind of talked about leather bars uh, when we were talking about the Warriors, and I think this is a, a good movie to segue into. Uh, it's it's an odd movie. It uh, polarized the community, uh, the, or the gay community. Um, it's. Um, you know, Al Pacino, he's an undercover cop, and he's trying to find out, you know, who the serial killer is in this uh, kind of S&M uh, gay subculture. And this also takes place in, in New York. Um, just a really, uh, I think, a strange career choice for, for Al Pacino. 
But uh, I, I've seen this movie several times. I still don't know what the hell's going on. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I do not know what happens at the end. I don't get it. But I don't care because I love the ride. You know, I don't have to understand the roller coaster. I just need to enjoy the roller coaster. Well, I mean, Al Pacino always made kind of strange choices like Dog Day Afternoon and uh, and the like. And even later in his career, all of a sudden he's in scent of a woman who thought Al Pacino would be playing some blind, you know, rich guy falling in love. You know, it's strange. You know, he's just so good at everything that he does that I think he picked roles to challenge himself. But yeah, it was definitely a controversial role for the time. I'll I'll give you that for sure. And I'll be honest with you, I've never seen the film. And uh, when you uh, presented it, I was like, hmm, I'm actually going to go check this out now and see what it's about. If anything, uh, you will enjoy seeing Al Pacino dancing at a gay club it is amazing and you're just like wow am i seeing this right now <laughs> your, your eyes can't unsee it <laughs> once you see oh really it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man okay i'm sold i'm totally sold so I've, I've got i've got a pretty good list going for me you now i have cockfighter and i have cruising okay Yay. it's a good list All right, let's uh, check out this uh, education in um, what kind of fashion you should wear in the gay community. Excuse me, can I ask you about these? What about them? What are they for? Well, like blue Hank, in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. Green one left side says you're a hustler, right side you're a buyer. Yellow one left side means you give gold in the shower, right side you receive. Red one means say anything you want. Uh, I'm going to go home and think about it. I'm sure you'll make the right choice. <laughs> I'm going to go home and think about it. <laughs> yes, Powers Booth, who's the one uh, running the store. <laughs> yeah. So he's so matter of fact, you know, and yeah. he's describing, and I'm just like, no, I, I definitely don't want a yellow one, for sure. But you got that deep powers booth voice asking you if you want the yellow one. So, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, now I know what to wear and not to wear in West Hollywood. I'm good to go. Really yeah, I mean, this mm-hmm. is important. If, if there's nothing you take away from this film, know mm-hmm. what color handkerchief to put in which back pocket. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me do my next segue here. Um, on to my round, uh, we are on round five now, and I am going with Johnny Depp. And linking him to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the 1998 uh, cult classic, of course. My Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is my favorite book of all time. And there's a big backstory, not a huge 
backstory, but um, growing up in Chicago, um, I was in junior college uh, studying to be a journalist and ended up getting a notice to cover a stage version of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And I had heard of the book, but I had never read it. And of all the people that were putting on this production were, uh, it was New Crime Productions, which went on to make New Crime Films, but it was Steve Pink and John Cusack and Jeremy Piven producing this production. And in, I still have the program from it, Trista, would never, you have to tear it from my dead hands. It's, um... (laughs) Uh, John Cusack showed up in it, but it was Steve Pink playing Hunter S. Thompson, Jeremy Piven playing the lawyer, and it was crazy ass. And I remember my friend had his uh, 87 Camaro, and we went and he was a big toker guy, and we got all, he got me all smoked out, and we're like, okay, let's go see this thing. And I just fell in love with it. And then he tells me it's a book, you know, rather I knew it was a book, but he's like, you haven't read this thing. He's like, this thing's like a manifesto. It's fantastic. So (laughs) I ended up reading the book as a result. And of course we all know many, many directors and many, many stars have been linked to uh, trying to make Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas into a movie. You of course had uh, Bill Murray who had played Hunter S. Thompson previously and where the Buffalo roam and movie. yeah yeah um a different take on hunter i would say a much more uh 70s take it's on, a bit softer for sure yeah yeah and this had to kind of be super balls out and uh, fittingly terry gilliam took on the challenge and i'd say it's an eight out of a ten in effort and he did he did the best job you can do on an unfilmable uh, book because you're never going to hit all of the notes of this because it's such an experience reading it. I'm sure you feel that way about Clockwork Orange in a lot right. of ways that some of the things you're just not going to get on the screen that you felt viscerally reading it. So, uh Yeah. That was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, people that are f- unfamiliar with the book, you should read it. Um, he, it it's, it's a classic. Very much about uh, the uh, 60s and se- mostly the 60s drug culture people um, hitting their uh, peak and, and fading and having to deal with the fade in uh, that generation and how they're coping with being quote-unquote normal people as opposed to uh, the drug generation. Um, Are there any scenes you enjoyed in Fear and Loathing? I assume you've seen it. I have. I mean, to this day, ever since I saw that movie, whenever I'm in a situation where I feel like, oh, shit, uh, things are about to go down possibly, I always say, this is backcountry. Like, I just – it's kind of my cue to myself, like, watch out. This is backcountry. I need to move. Like, I need to get out of this right away. Mm-hmm. I like that. 
you got to have these uh, kind of I, – I, I am a big believer in, you know, kind of uh, little catchphrases and euphemisms for things so that uh, they're, they're cues for me to do something, not necessarily for everybody else to know, but I need to know. And so, <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I'm weird like that. <laughs> I have my two lines that are weird strangely enough that are just like that one's from buckaroo bonsai and anytime i'm in like a intense situation like turbulence on a plane and you're like oh shit are we going down or what i there's a um line in the beginning when buckaroo bonsai is racing the jet car and he goes off course and the car is vibrating and you know they're like buckaroo eject 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 and uh Perfect Tommy says, oh, don't worry. She'll hold. She'll hold. And I always say that to myself. And it was, it was this calming line that I learned at a, a, the age of 15. I'd always just go, she'll hold. She'll hold. <laughs> well, that's, and the, other, God, and the, that's other one, the beauty. Yeah, yeah. yeah we all but, have that. And the other one is from Alien, strangely enough, when I'm in a groove. Like when you're ha- when you're driving and you're like in crappy traffic and you're like trying to maneuver, um, or you're just like feeling like you're you know in the zone with something, I always say I'm five by five, <laughs> just like <laughs> just like the ship coming in to uh, unfortunately meet its demise in a very short time, but they're coming in five by five. And just floating in, and it's—I I, I always think of that because it's the last moment of peace that crew has before. Before all hell breaks loose. Yeah. <laughs> I know you love aliens because it's definitely an all hell breaks loose movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> One of the classics. So let's play some, uh, some of the classic gems from *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas*. We had two bags of grass. 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, also a quarter tequila, quarter rum, case of beer, pint of raw ether, two dozen amyl. Not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. There's uh, two women fucking a polar bear. Don't tell me those things. Not now, man. Oh, devil ether. It makes you behave like the village drunkard in some early Irish novel. Total loss of all basic motor skills. Blurred vision, no balance, numb tongue. The mind recoils in horror. Unable to communicate with the spinal column. Which is interesting because you can actually watch yourself behaving in this terrible way. But you can't control it. Or listen to me. In a few hours, she'll probably be sane enough to work herself into some sort of towering Jesus-based rage at the hazy recollection of being seduced by some kind of cruel Samoan who fed her liquor and LSD, dragged her to a Vegas hotel room, and then savagely penetrated every orifice in her little body with his throbbing, uncircumcised member. A drug person can learn to cope with things like seeing their dead grandmother crawling up their leg with a knife in her teeth, but nobody should be asked to handle this trip. There's absolutely no choice but to cut her adrift and hope her memory was fucked. Stay calm. Stay calm. I'm a relatively respectable citizen. Multiple felon, perhaps, but certainly not dangerous. 
Who are these people? These faces? Where do they come from? They look like caricatures of used car dealers from Dallas. And sweet Jesus, there are a hell of a lot of them at 4.30 on a Sunday morning. Still humping the American dream. That vision of the big winner somehow emerging from the last-minute pre-dawn chaos of a stale Vegas casino. So let's segue from excessive drugs and humping the American dream into another character that used excessive drugs and humped the American dream. Uh, Your next film. So my my final film uh, is linking uh, Al Pacino from Cruising into Scarface. Uh, And it's a bad boy makes even more terrible. Uh, I mean, it's just... uh, this really brutal movie. Um, it's uh, directed by Brian De Palma, who is in my top ten directors of all time. Uh, there's nothing that he's made that I don't like. I know a lot that uh, can be controversial. A lot of people feel like he's a hack. I don't believe that. I, I love his movies. And uh, this one is just um, the, the cast is perfect. Um, it's very intense. Pacino is just acting his ass off. You've got this uh, young Michelle Pfeiffer, who um, is this very complex character. Um, <clears throat> I love her. She looks amazing. Uh, you know, Stephen Bauer's in it. He's kind of a, I don't know what he's been doing lately, but there was a time, you know, in the early 80s where you could kind of see him and things here and there. Uh, Stephen Bauer I, is amazing. You must watch Ray Donovan. Oh, so that's on my list. That's is what he he's been that? doing. Yes, and he's phenomenal. He plays Javi, Ray Donovan, one of his his right-hand goons. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and, and he loves to... He, he's an interesting character, fans of the show out there. As you know, he uh, he's He's fueled by religion, his Judaism. It's very weird. It's very he's a very Ooh. complex character. <laughs> All right. Anyway, well, I'm, please I'm go definitely on. gonna check that one out. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know what I can say about this movie that people don't already know. Like, even if you haven't seen I feel like if a person hasn't seen Scarface, it's so ingrained in our culture right now, like or has been forever, that even if they haven't seen it, they know it. They know the story. They know the iconic scenes. Um, it's just um, this. But if you haven't seen it, it is an amazing experience, and it just needs to be done. Yes. Uh, pro tip, since that's what the millennials say these days. Pro tip, uh, either I found it um, – hilarious but the woman on the plane didn't find it hilarious um do not watch scarface on your tablet if you're sitting in a middle seat on a plane because the elderly woman next to you is going to give you looks that are priceless especially during the chainsaw scene early on oh boy oh my goodness she gave me this look like, why are you watching this? And I gave her this look back like, why are you looking over my shoulder? 
Yeah, and and really, the entertainment isn't, why free, aren't baby. you watching it, lady? <laughs> the entertainment isn't free, baby. That's what you get. <laughs> I know you don't want to pay for it on the screen in front of you and be all cheap and look over your shoulder at mine, but that's what you get. Scarface. <laughs> a chainsaw up against the guy's head. You're welcome. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I... I don't know anybody, I mean, but that in my circle or really anybody that I talk about movies with that does not enjoy this film. They might mm-hmm. hate the director, but, I mean, on some level, I mean, this this movie just has a universal appeal. I have no problem with Brian De Palma. He's just like every other director. You know, you have your hits and you have your misses, and that's... That's the world of directing. Very few directors out there, you can say, have a perfect track record. And that's experimentation. And um, another film that I'll mention on another episode is, and I know you're very familiar with, I'm sure, is Body Double. Oh, that yeah. De Palma did, which, is, which didn't do crap at the box office and nobody knows about, but it gave us one of Melanie Griffith's greatest roles next to working girl as Holly body, a porn star involved or possibly not involved in a murder. And yeah, I have no problem with Brian De Palma. I think he's, he's he's some of the most, I would say like in my formative years, like in my growing up, he directed, Everything that I liked, I mean, it was Sisters, um, Phantom of the Paradise, which is probably my number two favorite musical of all time. It's just that good. Um, He gave us Carrie, The Fury, Dressed to Kill, Blowout. Like, you can't – he was on a run in the late – well, yeah, late 70s, I think mid to late 70s of just yeah. doing these amazing films that, uh, I mean, there was nothing I feel out there that was exactly like what he was doing. Yeah. I think you're going to have to take a field trip down here to, uh, Hollywood in a few weeks. Cause I have, uh, tickets to it. Uh, they're having Paul Williams with a screening of Phantom of the Paradise. Get out of here. Oh my yep. god, I love him. Part of I love him. Fest. Yeah, yeah. I've never met him, so I'm very curious to see him fittingly with um with that movie. So good. Uh let's play um one of the scenes late in the film Scarface when things start going to hell. You don't even know how to be a husband. You start banging around all the time. I have Nick. The pig, as a friend. What kind of life is that? Come on. Casey, what we're becoming, darling. We're not winners. We're not winners. You're wrong. You're stone. I'm not stone. You're stone. Okay, get her out. Come on, come on. I'm not going home with you. I'm not going home with anybody. Let her go, let her go. Another quailucci gonna love me again. You look at You all a bunch of fucking assholes. You know why? You don't have the guts to be what you wanna be. You need people like me. 
You need people like me so you can point your fucking fingers and say, that's the bad guy. So, what I make you? Good? You're not good. You just know how to hide. How to lie. Me, I don't have that problem. Me, I always tell the truth. Even when I lie. So say good night to the bad guy. The last time you're going to see a bad guy like this again, let me tell you. There so you true. go. Yes. <laughs> Al Pacino, man. Al Pacino. Yeah, and it's another one of those movies that it ends, you know, it's one of my favorite things of all time. It's like utter and complete mayhem and like chaos. By the end, everything is just getting totally destroyed, and I love it. I think we're learning a lot about your life, Video Fiction. Um, we'll have to dig deep into this in future episodes if you'll come back. Um, oh, absolutely. Let me end, since we have a short time left. Um, I had you do a few together because they were it was just better segue-wise. So I'm going to end with the one-two punch, comedy punch, if you will. Uh, this is a reach. But Mark Harmon played a played uh, a magazine reporter in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Basically, everybody did bit parts in that movie. Johnny Depp called in every single favor he could. So Mark Harmon, I'm going to segue into Summer School. Yay! Summer School, the great cult comedy that I saw back in the 80s. And this film, people won't remember it. Until you say two words to them. Chainsaw and Dave. And once you say Chainsaw and Dave, everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. You're like, oh, they're like, oh, yeah. The one with Mark Harmon is the substitute. Yes, yes, that's the one. Because Chainsaw and Dave are the best characters in a comedy. They've come, come along in a long time. Um, they're two guys that are in your that, – Everybody had them in their in their high school classes growing up. They're the two guys. In fact, the father of one of them says at one point near the end of the movie, he goes, well, of course they got the same test score. They share a brain. <laughs> <laughs> Those inseparable guys that just share the same love for something, and their love is for horror movies. Um, the plot line is uh, Mark Harmon gets jammed into – He's a gym teacher and gets jammed at the last minute into teaching remedial English for uh, summer school when he's supposed to go to Hawaii. And this movie thing, a lot of people that went on to go do things. You have Courtney Thornsmith playing 16 but looking 22, yeah. as always was back then. <laughs> uh, Dean Cameron and Gary Riley playing uh, playing Chain on Dave. Alley. Um, I just watched this last night because I needed a palate cleanser from Mother. And yeah. uh, I, my friend goes, Well, there are a lot of really pretty eyes in this movie. Like, everybody has pretty eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's I, super hot, Kirstie Alley, at that. Exactly. And they're like, Eyes are huge, and Courtney Thorne's eyes are huge, and Carl Reiner directed this movie and it's not your usual Carl Reiner film. Everybody knows him for the next film I'm going to 
uh, do the jerk. They know usually know Carl Reiner for from working with uh, Mel Brooks, or they know him from working with Steve Martin, who he did a good half dozen films with. So I'm going to just get into Chainsaw and Dave because it's just going to tell the humor of the film way better than I can explain. Sorry, here we go. Hey, Mr. Shoup, wow. Uh, you in this class too? Mm-mm. I'm teaching it. No, no way! Put it on the desk! Put it on the desk! My dear, like to put it on the desk! All right, all right, have a seat. You're the lucky winner, Darn. Francis Grimp. Oh, uh, don't recall me that. The name is Chainsaw. I was in Black and Decker? I was in Texas Massacre. Oh. Well, so far, I've only subbed at grammar school, so this should be a nice change. My classroom? Yes, it is. Whose blood is that? Is that your blood? No! American masterpiece. It's it's uh, talk about it's got the endings. The girl, the girl gets away, and our hero Leatherface he chainsaws his own legs. Two thumbs up. Make that four for gore. <laughs> Tension breaker had to be done. Anybody else? I bet you didn't know that Leatherface was the hero of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, did you? (laughs) Not until they told me. (laughs) (laughs) Two of my favorite lines in the film I had to put in there. The first one, of course, being, it might not come clear in the clip, but Chainsaw and Dave decide to torture the fill-in for Mr. Shoop, who decides he's sick of teaching the class because the kids keep asking for demand. So he says, screw it. I'm going to Hawaii. And the principal of the school gets a replacement. And the poor woman walks into this literal horror show that Chainsaw and Dave have set up with a bunch of makeup. And they're, they actually have chainsaws in their hands and they're running around with them. It's and I such just love an awesome scene. I just love the poor innocent teacher going, is that your blood? <laughs> and she goes, no. <laughs> this movie is very um, underrated. I think, I, I don't know if it did very well in the theater. Um, I I totally went to see it uh, when it came out. And uh, just with a little, you know, pack of my high school friends. And we uh, we loved it. I saw it at the ass end of the summer it came out. I remember I, w- I was in that phase, you know, when you're a teenager, and I thought I was a film critic, and I was getting all snooty. And I, because the movie was a hit, I was like, oh, it can't be that good. It can't be that funny. And I remember seeing it like the second-run theater, and I go see it, and I'm like, oh, my God, I totally missed this classic when I could have seen it with, like, a bigger audience. And it was an instant classic in my head, though, from, like, the first, you know, half of the film. So 
I was Johnny come lately on it, but I got warmed up and hopefully listening to this, people will go find it as well. And the second part of my one, two punch is of course, Carl Reiner's classic with Steve Martin, one of the ultimate comedy cult classics, the jerk, Steve Martin, just amazing film, everything from iron balls, McGinty to a, you know, a dog named shithead. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Bernadette Peters as the very playing the straight role as the love interest, but still getting in a few lines here and there, as you'll notice from the clip I'm going to end uh, on us with, with the cla- most classic scene from the jerk. That's all I need. You know, that's all uh, I that's need. That's my favorite it. scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing. But um, there are a few other favorite scenes. One of my favorite uh Steve Martin was always great, and Carl Reiner and their writing were subtle, like one-liners here and there. And one of my favorite scenes is because Steve Martin just loves, um, you know, screwing around with people. Is when he's a carnival barker and he's telling people he's guessing their weight, and then he's like, "Well, no, all you can win is stuff on this shelf between these two items and these two items." <laughs> And it's like some horrible prize, and it's very Steve Martin. But um, we have only a few more minutes to go and just enough time to play the clip. I want to thank you so much, Video Vixen, for coming on uh, Six Degrees of Retro and sharing two hours of uh, uh, cult movie battle here. I really appreciate uh, your, uh, your films. Very good choices. Well, thank you, and uh, I totally enjoyed it. I would love to do it again. Oh, you're always welcome back. You're, 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 as long as you have some gloves to come into the ring, you know, hey, you're good to go. Anytime. <laughs> I'll take you anytime. <laughs> Damn. All right. I'm scared of Video Vixen now. I'm totally scared. She's going to pull some of the ultraviolence on me. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, go to the video, thevideovixen.com. That's, that's it, correct? That's it. Videovixen.com. Look me up at Six Degrees of Retro on Instagram. You can look her up uh, on Instagram as well, well under Trista Perez. And uh, thank you for listening. And enjoy as we give our outro with uh, the jerk. Say to the order of Iron Balls McGinty. One dollar and nine cents. Why are you crying? And why are you wearing that old dress? Because I just heard a song on the radio that reminded me of the way we were. What was it? Where we were. Look at it. We've hit bottom. No! Maybe you've hit bottom, but I haven't hit bottom yet. I got a ways to go. There's plenty of places I can go where people believe in me. Well, go. The sooner you're out of my life, the sooner I can go back to being the girl in this little flower dress that you say the third song to. Well, I'm going to go then. <laughs> and I don't need any of this. I don't need this stuff. And I don't need you. I don't need anything except this. This ashtray. That's the only thing I need is this. I don't need this or this. This is ashtray. It's this paddle game.
remote control. The ashtray, the power game, and the remote control. And that's all I need. These matches. The ashtray, and these matches, and the remote control, and the paddle ball. This lamp. Whoa, what are you?